You know I'm right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese. And Joe, what can I say about our guest other than he's a real trailblazer? He gets to go around the world, sail around the world. He's going to Bermuda, Bahamas, Hawaii. I mean, what a life this guy's got. Travel can be tough, that's sure, but um, I'm sure he enjoys those beaches as well, Joe. Yeah, we're definitely jealous of the traveling part of his gig. Um, but he is somebody who uh, I think has one of the most extensive resumes of anybody that we've had on this podcast. Um, he's done sports reporting. He's been a writer, uh, lead play-by-play broadcaster and announcer. Currently works for NBC Sports. He's done stuff with the Olympics and extreme sports. Um, but his catalog dates super further back. I, I mean, he's done basketball, both covering playoff basketball for the NBA, college basketball, college football. He's got to be a part of some of the best games of all time. He's worked for World Extreme Cage Fighting, UFC. I mean, currently, like I said, does extreme sports, do tour, Red Bull Signature Series, Tour de France. I mean, it goes on and on and on. He's got some experience doing a lot of different stuff, and uh, we're very happy that he's been he's going to join us right now. Uh, Todd Harris. Todd, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Good to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you, Joe. You left one thing out, and that was that Todd used to broadcast the Strongest Man competition on ESPN. Todd, how did that opportunity come about for you? Yeah, it was one of those things that just it just came about. I was doing some stuff for ESPN on, on their uh, extreme sports side, and I got a call from uh, one of the executives and said, hey, we'd be interested in, we're bringing back a show from the 70s that Brent Musburger was a part of called World's Strongest Man. And I was like, it's like WWE wrestling is, I mean, is this legit? It's hundred percent legit. Thank you to go. Uh, we're going to see this exotic location called Prim Nevada, and we're going to bring it back uh, at state line. And so, you know, I'm a pretty adventurous guy. It's like, what the heck? Let's go for it. So I went down there and it was pretty fun. It was like 12 days of shooting because the, the, the events take all day. They compressed it down. The good folks at IMG and that was uh, Tony Lenny and Steve Maris. And uh, they, they put this whole together and, and that was the first year. I think I did 18 years of that. And there's a great quote by uh, one of the legendary journalists of the time. Um, and he said, I wanted to see the world and I wanted someone else to pay for it. And I said, oh, that's, <laughs> great. that's a great way to look at things. And so, yeah, Prim Nevada wasn't the highlight of those trips. But, you know, there was Malta, there was Malaysia, there was uh, Singapore, South Africa, Sun City, uh, Morocco, all these places that I never would have gone had it not been for the world's strongest man. There you go. Now, you started your journey into broadcasting at BYU. So before we get into that, I got to ask you, of of these following names, who's the biggest star to come out of BYU? Jimmy Fredette, Zach Wilson, Joe's quarterback on the Jets, Danny Ainge, Jack Morris, Sean Bradley, Ziggy Ansah, Brian Billick, Andy Reid, Kyle Van Noy, Jim McMahon, or Steve Young? That's a good one. I mean, I'm, I'm older than you young fellas. So I would say I'm more of the Steve Young era. Um, pretty awesome. A big fan of the Danny Ainge because he was a two-sporter, which I thought was pretty awesome. But Jimmermania kind of took hold of the country on March Madness, and that was a big deal. So I'm, I'm going to say Jim McMahon, too, is in there because he brought – I mean, that's a tough one. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say there's, there's got to be like a Mount Rushmore. We're just going to go with like McMahon, Young, Zach Wilson, and Danny Ainge. Uh, yeah, fair, fair enough. And I think, Joe, we could both agree when it comes to greatest of all time covering extreme sports from BYU. 
It's got to be Todd. Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be Todd. I got that one. No doubt about it. got that one down, Todd. So, Todd, at BYU, you studied broadcast journalism, communications. When in your mind did you decide that you wanted to pursue a path in broadcasting? And what steps did you take once arriving on campus to maybe get your tape in order or reel or whatnot? Yeah, it's a good question, Nick. It goes way back to fourth grade, West Sylvan Elementary, Portland, Oregon, Mrs. Drulard's class. I was a big fan of Monday Night Football. And I don't know if you guys remember, but Monday Night Football back when it was Howard Cosell before you were around. And he used to do like this five minute whip around of the best games, um, highlights, you know, highlight reel of, of, the, of the Sunday games. And I remember he, the way he did it was so good. It was like, but wait, Fran Tarkington brought back the Minnesota Vikings. And I remember begging my parents to let me stay up just to see Howard Cosell's recap of the weekend. Because back in the day, you didn't get to see all the games. And so uh, being able to see highlight with your team on there was, was awesome. So I really got the bug, I think, honestly, back in fourth grade. Because I remember going the next day, and I was kind of a class clown. And we were making something in class um, with cigar or with, with uh, pipe cleaners. And I remember crafting an earpiece microphone and I made all the kids laugh going, and then the Vikings came back to win it in green. And the kids thought it was hilarious. So that was my first taste of it. But when I went to BYU initially, um, really good broadcasting school, I was thinking of medicine. I was going to, you know, major biology, medicine, uh, some family members that are the doctors. Uh, my father-in-law is a surgeon. And I remember going to him and, and saying, you know, I'm thinking about medicine. You're a surgeon. What do you think? He goes, no, I wouldn't do it. He said, let absolutely love it. This is the only thing you can think of doing. Don't do it. And I'm like, I'm going to marry your daughter. And what you're telling me no on the medical school. He said, what would you just anything? You could have anything. Money doesn't matter. What would it be? I go, ah, it's broadcasting. He said, do that. So I remember going into the uh, counselor's office and, and saying, I think I'm going to switch my major. They're like, oh, from biology to biochemistry or physics. What do you think? I'm like, a broadcast journalism. And they're like, that's a 180. So there it was. I spent the next two or three years trying to hone somewhat of a craft and uh, put together a tape and a reel and graduated in, I'll say, in the 90s. And uh, first job, Bowling Green, Kentucky, weekend news acre, day reporter. Didn't even give me a chance to do sports because they only had two guys and they were pretty well ensconced at the station. So you have a couple of kids, and I believe one of your kids ended up going to medical, medical school. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, he's, he's what the old man couldn't. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, my son Drew is in medical school. He's third right now. Uh, not exactly sure what he wants to do, but he's got time. So, uh, yeah, I can live vicariously through him when he's talking about studying. Uh, yeah, so you had some. All that stuff. Yeah. When he's you studying, had some influence there. Exactly. When he's, don't when he's follow my footsteps. Day, it's too hard to do. <laughs> don't go to broadcasting. Instead. I don't think you have the mental capacity for it. <laughs> uh, okay. So you briefly mentioned your time uh, getting. Uh, first job at Bowling Green, but I wanted to ask about internships and other stuff that you did on campus uh, to help you get to that point. Yeah, I, you know, BYU had a really good uh, setup because they had a radio station and then they had a TV station. And so you really got a lot of hands on. Um, I really enjoyed producing. Um, I liked the fact that you didn't have to clean up, put on a nice shirt. You could just go in there and bark at people and put your blazer cap on and, you know, no big deal. But I, I like being in front of the camera. I like the rush of, you know, the count to three, two, and then they point to you. I, I just like that. I like reporting and, and giving you a perspective on, on what we were seeing. Um, I, I remember, though, BYU doing a sports highlight one time in a conservative town, Provo, Utah. And I said something about Milwaukee Brewers hit a home run, a walk-off home run. And I said, it's suds for everyone. 
and people called into the KBYU station. Shouldn't be talking about people drinking beer. That's that just doesn't end well. So um, I had to. I remember where I was where I was calling. Yeah, had to edit myself. Intense stuff. So tell us about how you ultimately ended up with ESPN. At that time, ESPN, not an established brand. They don't have major media rights for the most part. And how did the journey for you from Bowling Green to, to Bristol really take place? My wife's family was really good friends with a guy who was what, what they call a packager for ESPN. And so ESPN would hire these companies that had expertise in certain areas, sports, uh, genres, and they would hire them to produce the shows if they weren't live. And so this company in Southern, uh, Southern California, San Clemente, Alan Gibby had a company called Dinocom, and they would go out and produce the exports, which ESPN was getting into with the birth of the X Games and stuff. And so one of my first jobs was uh, with them. And I remember telling my wife, hey, I've got an opportunity to work with ESPN. Uh, it's going to be doing some extreme sports. And we were living in Kentucky and her family was back out here. She's from Laguna Beach, California. And so she saw the opportunity to move back west. And she's like, we're packing the bags. We're going. You're doing it. And so we went out there and uh, Dynacom was producing all kinds of great content from surfing and snowboarding world tours, jet ski racing. Um, and I was just, I was kind of hooked. And one of my first was the world jet ski finals in Lake Havasu, Arizona. And I remember going there, they're going to pay me to go to Lake Havasu and cover this. And I thought it was the greatest gig in the world. And then that was followed up, I think a couple weeks later with a trip to Bermuda or, or I'm sorry, it was Bahamas. They're like, yeah, we need you to go for a week. The event will only be two or three days. And the event was the first two or three days. And then they're like, well, by the time we switch hotels and plane tickets, you might as well just stay there. So it was the Caribbean Cups, Sprite Caribbean Cup Surfing Championship. And I was like, this is amazing. And I remember talking to my dad, like, wait, they're paying you for this. When are you getting a real job? You know, school is still a possibility. I'm like, dad, this is the ticket. I'm doing this. And so, yeah, long story <laughs> short, I kind of got myself into the extreme sport genre uh, I was fortunate enough to transition that into some NBA play with uh, TNT. And then when Keith Jackson came out of retirement, it really was kind of the start of my career for the networks at ABC. They were looking for a sideline reporter for Keith Jackson. He didn't want to travel east of the big mountains, which is also code for the Rockies. And so I thought, man, Saturday afternoon, Pac-12 football with Keith Jackson and Dan Fouts. A dream come true. And my agent's like, well, you should apply for it. You should get your name out there. I'm like, yeah, go ahead. But yeah, there's probably going to be a thousand people. She goes, about 2,000 people want that job. And uh, man, ABC, John Filippelli had the sense or lack of sense to say, we want you on board. So that began my eight-year run with uh, Keith and Dan on West Coast football on ABC, which was a lot of fun. Bermuda, Bahama, come on, pretty mama. I mean, you did it. <laughs> nice work on that, Joe. Well done. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, but uh, So your start is a little unconventional because yeah. you were doing – kind of like that, you know, extreme sport, you know, kind of those not even really secondary sports here. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you used to do, uh, sometimes it gets buried when it comes to overall sports coverage here, you know, in this country. So I, I wanted to ask um, your opinion on just saying yes to everything and making sure that you jump on those opportunities as they're presented to you. That's a really good question. Um, you know, I had a good friend coming out of college and his whole goal was just to stay in Salt Lake City. And so he was like, I'm going to intern at the NBC local affiliate. I'm going to become a weekend reporter. I'm going to become a weekday reporter. I'm going to work and basically work 
worked way up to the, the main, you know, primetime anchor. And I was like, man, that's fantastic. Good for you. But for me, again, going back to that um, Carroll quote, I wanted to see the world and have someone else pay for it. And as much as I like Salt Lake City now that we've moved in, in Utah, um, I still, I just, there was too much out there I wanted to see. I wanted to be at the Rose Bowl in January where everyone else was home freezing in snow or cold weather. And I was going to be on the sidelines in a short sleeve shirt or, or at least a coat and tie and not freezing. And I wanted to experience what it's like to get pipeline on the North Shore of Hawaii in January and see those waves come in. And there was just so many things I wanted to be there firsthand um, that I thought, you know what, I'm going to roll the dice. And yeah, maybe saying yes to everything, not always the best thing. I, I got sent on some things where I, I thought, oh, man, I hope my mother's not watching this kind of stuff. But uh, you know what? Someone's got to cover Magic the Gathering World Championship from Belgium. It might as well be me. Um, so yeah, a lot of stuff like that that came my way. And I just, if I wasn't doing anything, I was always kind of, sure, why not? So uh, whether that was great career, I don't know. But uh, at the time, my agent all thought, just exposure, exposure, get out there and show your versatility. So you mentioned Salt Lake City. I have to ask you because there's a lot of reality shows now based oh boy. on Salt Lake City or things about Salt Lake City. You got my, my wife's favorite show, Sister Wives. You have uh, Salt Lake City, The Real Housewives, which is actually a fantastic show. Joe, you should definitely catch that. My mother uh, watches it. You know, what, what, is, what would you say to somebody who has never been to Salt Lake City and is just seeing things on TV? And I want to know yeah. about like, you know, how invested are people in the area in the Utah Jazz? And why does Donovan Mitchell not get enough credit for being one of the best basketball players in the league? Man, lots of good points there. So I didn't grow up here. I came here to go to school and actually went to Provo, which is about 40 miles south of Salt Lake City. And it's the West version of what they call Happy Valley. Um, people used to say, uh, BYU, the world is our campus and the campus is our world because if it doesn't happen on BYU campus, it's not happening. So you get out of that. Salt Lake City is a, a, quite a bit more cosmopolitan town. Um, the Jazz pretty much are the main show in town, uh, the only major professional sport until RSL, the MLS team came to play. But the Jazz pretty much run things. And then it's, you know, Utah and BYU rivalry, football, basketball, that kind of thing. And then they've got some minor league baseball and, of course, MLS. Um, but yeah, I only have one wife. Um, I do have a lot of kids, uh, but I love it here. And if you like outdoors and action sports, I would, I mean, I hate to say this because Salt Lake real estate is crazy here. Um, Salt Lake's the place for you. It's safe. It's clean. It's growing. If you skate, if you snowboard, if you mountain bike, road bike, wakeboard, wake surf, this is like a Mecca. Um, it's just got everything. So not to brag, but I can on my bike, I can be on my snowboards. I can be on a boat all within less than an hour from, from my house and feel like I'm miles and miles away from any kind of city. So uh, I, I like it here. Uh, we've raised our kids here. I don't know if I'll end up there when I get older. You're right now saying you're already old, but when I get old and decide to slow down, but they've got a brand new great international airport. So for me, I have to travel to work. So if the airport works great, my wife has some family here, she's happy. Um, and if the wife's happy, things seem to go very smooth, but, uh, yeah, our kids are, a lot of our kids are still here. Um, so it's home for that, but yeah, it's, it's a great place. Uh, you know, I, I watched big love on HBO, like everyone else. It's not like that. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's just a really good place to live. And, and you're right. Donovan Mitchell does not get enough credit. If he was in Brooklyn, Miami, Los Angeles, Dallas, he would be everywhere, but he's just, 
such a good ball player and such a good person. And I think the community of Salt Lake City has just clamped on to him. If he ever leaves, I think they'll pass a couple around to raise money to sign him for a long-term deal because Donna Mitchell is the face of the organization right now and the people here just absolutely love him. Uh, so we'll go point by point. Number one, you look good for your age. Number two, they say happy wife, happy life. So Thank you. seems like you're, um, you're on the ball there. Uh, Nick and I are from New York City, so it's kind of like a shell shock. Uh, the Utah versus, you know, New York City, big city yeah. kids over here. So um, I've always wanted to, to be out there. I have family that lives in Vegas, but they do the, 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 the five, six-hour drives, and they drive into the mountain. They do that whole thing over there. So hopefully one day I could be out there. Um, so you briefly mentioned it before. Uh, we like to ask this question to everybody we have on when it comes to agent and representation. So uh, you mentioned that you started, uh, you went from ESPN and then you got opportunities to start covering uh, playoff basketball with NBA on TNT. Then you started to do college football. Uh, you got to work with the unbelievable Keith Jackson. And like I said at the top, you got to do some of the most legendary uh, broadcasts and some of the most memorable games of all time. So when it comes to agent and representation, uh, when did you find yourself hiring an agent or seeking out representation? And do you believe it is a necessity for somebody who's looking to break through and work in the media industry, specifically the sports media industry, because it is very, very difficult to find jobs out there? Joseph, that's a good question. And I will try to answer point by point. Um, yeah, I, I was fortunate and got some good breaks along the way, which is, is a lot of it. I mean, there's people that I'll tell this to anyone that are more talented than me that didn't get the breaks I got. Why that happens, I don't know. I guess they call that life. But um, I felt like at, at some point um, you need to have some kind of representation, a footprint in New York City or Los Angeles. And, and for the record, New York City is on the list of places my wife and I have thought about retiring to. We love. Don't do it. Horrible. Don't place. do it. You don't want to be. We're trying to get out. Go no, back don't to do it. Beach. <laughs> you guys come here for a year. We'll go there. It'll there we great. go. Perfect. Maybe that's a good idea. Um, but we, I absolutely love New York city. I have a son that, uh, that lived in New York city for two years and he, he's a big fan of it as well. So, uh, we're there all the time and, and I just love the city. Um, to answer your question, as far as representation that I think you get to the point where, um, you, you kind of out punt your coverage for lack of better terms. You need someone that's running in those big conversations, someone that has access to those big conversations to kind of, to fly your flag for you. And so, um, to get an opportunity like I got with Keith Jackson, I had a great agent named Susan Lipton with IMG and, and she had access to those kind of conversations because she was with Sandy Montag and some other great agents. And they were having those discussions of who should we get, who should we get? So at that point, I think you have to look at, okay, I'm capable and I have the ability to do these jobs. But I'm not getting in because they don't know who I am. That's, I think when you have to say, okay, I need someone that can, you know, I got a big dog in the fight and they can, and they can fly flag for me. Um, as of late, I've used more of an attorney approach. Uh, I have an attorney that reads contracts for me and does all that stuff because a lot of times I'll get calls from people um, from the network directly and say, hey, this is you know, Tim from CBS. We'd love to have you on. Are you exclusive with NBC or can we carve out a weekend where you're available? And I'm thinking, well, they did, they called my agent. That's my agent 10% and you're calling me and you're offering me what you're offering me does the agent get me 10% more than that? Because that's what I'm paying them. And so it's a little bit of math you work out, but um, you know, you have to pick the right agent and the right scenario for you. Um, for some people, I don't think they necessarily need an agent. I think it's always good to have representation to 
read over contracts and make sure you're taken care of and you're covered. But um, just starting out, you know, if they believe in you and they're going to jump on board and say, hey, we're a fan of, of Todd Harris, Inc., then those are the kind of agents you want in your corner. I always said I wanted an Ari Gold from, uh, from the Entourage <laughs> as my agent. because I had my Ari favorite Gold show. Fan. Yeah. Need a second Love movie. It. Yeah. We do need so, a second yeah. movie. To answer your question, I think, I think it's, it's an individual situation on where you're at. You know, if you're, if you're working in the Salt Lake City market and they love you here and your station loves you, probably need an agent to do the, the arguing for you because they're going to pay you what they're going to pay you around that. But if you want to, you know, go back East and you don't know anybody in the city or ESPN or the networks probably need someone to, to open those doors for you. So Todd, I think it's pretty incredible. You're one of the few people that I could think of that has actually done work for the big four, ABC slash ESPN, Fox sports, CBS sports, and NBC. Yeah. You ever think back on that accomplishment and say, wow, how lucky have I been? You know what, Nick, and I'll ask you and Joe how this is. I, I look at it sometimes like, oh, that's a big accomplishment. Or is it? I mean, kind of like, no one kept you. They all kind of moved you along mm. the lines. Um, I was fortunate to work for all of them, and they're, they all have amazing people there. It's just the way the scenarios worked it out. You know, I went from ESPN to ABC, and then ABC and ESPN merged when Disney kind of brought them together. And so I felt like that was one big family. And, and I don't say I out my welcome there it's just the things that i was doing kind of got absorbed people of espn so i think the espn executives are saying we got this kbc we got people at espn in bristol who can do that for less or you know they're on site here let's put them in and so i saw the windows closing my opportunities there and i don't know how serendipity or what but i called literally the next day after i heard from espn when they said we're not going to pick up the option year on your contract i was thinking life for me is over. There's, there cannot be life after ESPN and ABC. It's, it's over. And literally the next day I got a call from NBC and they said, are you available? We'd like to put you on the, the do tour. We'd like you to do the Olympics for us. And, this. and I was thinking, so I, I don't know if people were talking and people at ESPN and ABC said, we're letting this guy go, but he'd be a good fit for you. That's where I've been the last 11 years. So um, NBC is in the, in the process, in the point of changing right now because they're starting to push things over Peacock TV, more streaming. Uh, there's rumors that NBCSN might go away. Hockey is left. So uh, what they used to have when it was, uh, you know, the World Series of Fighting and a lot of Red Bull Signature Series, a lot of things I used to do, they've transitioned away from that. So uh, I don't know. Maybe there's another network out there that I can go to work for. Maybe I'll just circle back and start over again. We shall see. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I believe you did the 1998 Olympics for Turner. Is that correct? Yeah. So how much, you know, and just obviously with NBC, it's much different. They're all about the Olympics, but how much of a difference have you seen over the years? You've done a lot of Olympics now um, from that first one uh, up until, you know, this, this past summer where you're just in front of a monitor, I'm guessing, but just to speak to us about your Olympic experience and how do you, you know, prepare for that? It's, there's a lot of work. You're not necessarily, seeing these events on a weekly basis and maybe sometimes you're being told, Hey, you're going to be doing snowboarding now, but you may have not done snowboarding ever. And how, how did that work out for you? Yeah. And I've been really fortunate because most of the sports I've done, I've been pretty involved in. So uh, preparation hasn't been that difficult for me because it kind of has fallen into my normal flow. Um, yeah. Night were my first Olympic games and uh, my turn agent at the time, Ellen Beckwith got me the gig with Turner sports. CBS had the rights 
but they didn't have cable rights. There was a term cable rights out there that was crazy. And so Turner coupled with CBS and said, you do the broadcast, we'll do the, the cable on TNT, TBS and that sort of thing. And so they hired me to do snowboarding and mobile skiing, which I was like, fantastic. And so that was snowboarding's uh, debut in Olympics, which everyone remembers, Ross Regulati, the Canadian that had his gold medal taken away for smoking weed, allegedly. But then he got it right back because they said, well, it's not really a performance in hand. So it's like, we knew we shouldn't let snowboards in here. They're just smoking weed. And it's just, it's crazy. But it was memorable. And then I fell right into uh, mobile skiing with a guy that I ended up doing television with as a, my commentator partner, John Mosley, when he won the gold medal for doing the mute grab. And everyone went, this is the craziest thing ever. So I felt really lucky. Um, Turner Sports was kind of picking and choosing what CBS at the start of the day would say, hey, we don't want snowboarding that, you can have it. We don't want mobile skiing, you can have that. And so I kind of felt the good events that turned out to be great. Um, and then from there, I went over to NBC. But it, it, the preparation for the Olympics is, is like nothing else. It's, it's pretty serious. These, these kids, these athletes train for four years to get to the point. And so you don't want to be the guy that's can't pronounce their name or their hometown or don't, don't know anything about them. So the research people um, are amazing. I mean, they literally have every little factoid, everything like that. But then you get the balance of you got to still call the event without sounding like you're just rattling off story for story. So um, I, I think one of the greatest stories from the Olympics, if I can just share it really quick, was 2018 in Pyeongchang and Sean White going for the gold medal after missing out in Sochi. And my producer, who is one of the best at NBC, Billy Matthews, uh, we got to the point in the competition where it was the last run. Sean White, the number one qualifier, so he's the last man to drop in, final run of the competition. He was sitting in, I believe, in second, and he had one run, best run counts. So it's one run for the gold medal. And as the cameras kind of panned in up the pipe to Sean up there, he had the bandana always over his face, and he kept pulling it down, taking deep breaths. And our producer, Billy, we had the knowledge and the foresight to say, don't say anything. Let's just lay out. And so we literally, I think someone timed it for me. I think we laid out for like almost two, two and a half minutes and just let Sean White up there just take deep breath after deep breath. He's like, not yet. Don't say, you know, we just waited until he actually dropped in. And, you know, the rest is history. He, he went on and stomped it, gold medal. And someone asked me one time, they said, you had a line in there that was, you must have thought of that beforehand. And it, I, I'm not a write down line, you know, for the whole, all the, the whole bag of Tostitos kind of stuff. I just, I like it come kind of organically. And I remember Sean's really into fashion. And as he came across him, everything, if he wins gold, I better say something, you know, poignant. This better be a, a moment. And I remember thinking, well, White's going to, if White wins the gold, White wins gold. And I was thinking, is the new gold? And I was like, because he didn't win the last <laughs> one, but he's already got it. It just came to me. So I said, I'm going to tuck that in the back of my mind. And I didn't know the score yet. And so when the score went up, you know, I think I, I made a, a stupid reference to a game of thrones. I said, it's the return of the King. White is the new gold. And then we didn't say anything. And so people either loved it or hated it. Sean said loved it. So there you go. Certainly got yeah. high praise across the board. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask how your prep work changes from sport to sport. And just a quick aside, uh, I interned for NBC and the Olympics and I did it for the summer games though, back in 2012 when they were in London. So uh, I got to see that whole process before NBC Sports moved uh, basically their entire operation to the campus where they are now in Stanford, Connecticut. And I interned over there too a couple of years yeah. later. But uh, I got to see all those like uh, those little booths and, and kind of get to see how everybody uh, does play by play, all the different work. 
so I don't know if you were ever at 30 Rock to do that. I don't know if you were ever uh, broadcasting out of Stanford, Connecticut. You know, I'm sure there were points where you were. Uh, but I wanted to ask you how your prep work changes from, from sport to sport. Yeah, I, I've been fortunate. Um, I've never had to do an Olympics um, away from the venue. So I've been at all the Olympics that I've had to call or been able to call. So that's, I've been fortunate in that regard. Um, I've done the Paralympics for NBC multiple times from Stanford. And I can tell you that is a challenge. Um, Paralympics are amazing. The athletes are amazing. Uh, but it, when it's a time change, like this last one we just did in Tokyo Paralympics. So I did the Olympics for skateboarding and I was in Tokyo. Uh, one of the few people that actually got to go. So I felt honored to that. But it was so hot there. Uh, didn't complain because of that. There are people back in Stanford that are working at 2 a.m. And I'm here on site with Tony Hawk and Sean and all these guys covering skateboarding. So life cool. was good. But doing the Paralympics in Stanford was a challenge in that um, I was with sw doing swimming with uh, Michelle Conkley, a time Paralympic gold medalist. And we had an evening session, which started around, I think, 8.30ish and went to like around midnight, 11.30. And then there was a break. And then the evening session for Tokyo for us was, I think, 2.30 to 7 a.m. And so you have 11 days of getting up, you know, 2 a.m. to 7 a.m. You go back to the hotel and it's like zombie, you know, you're trying to sleep, but you hear everyone in the halls and stuff. Yeah. That, that's the hardest part. Um, as far as preparation goes, Joe, I, the Olympics are a whole different beast than other sports um, because there's so many moving parts. Uh, you start maybe on like a snowboard, you start with maybe 45 athletes. And then they cut the field down to 20 and then they cut it down to 12 for the final. So you have to basically know a little bit of something about everyone, even though you're not going to call all their runs. Um, it's just a, it's a big pie and you got to be prepared for it. Cause you don't want to be the guy that's caught out as opposed to doing like a basketball game, a university of Utah basketball game. It's a lot easier. They have a roster of 12 guys. I usually have all my guys on one side, other team on the other side, bio information, stories, stats, all that stuff go. Um, and it's right in front of me. So it's, it's a little different stick and ball sports, I think are a little, uh, a little easier at times because you can really be prepared for who's going to be on the field to play at any one time. Uh, football, it's 22 basketball, obviously 10. So it's, it's a little more manageable as opposed to like an action sport where surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding, you start with such a big field uh, and then you pare it down. And, and that's what I do. You know, we get to the quarterfinals and Anyone that doesn't make the quarterfinal cut, I take their bio stuff. I don't throw it away, but I just move them to the side. And now I focus on these 12 that are in the final and maybe go through my notes, fine tune them one more time, and then like rip. So with, with the events you're doing, extreme sports, they, they're not like – it's not like a basketball game. There's no quarters. There's no halftime. They're longer events. So I'm curious – the first thing you're doing when you are getting in the booth, are you looking to see where the nearest bathroom is? Cause I don't know how you could possibly control your bladder where you got to be talking so long, drinking water, I would think to keep the pipes yeah. good. Yeah. Because it, it, to me, it seems almost impossible. Unless the bathroom's right there for you to run out of the break to, to go to the bathroom. And some of them, I gotta be honest with you, Nick are nowhere near. Uh, when we were in Sochi, we were like on a eight story scaffold platform. And there was no wow. elevator. So if you have to go to the restroom, you're running down eight flights of scaffolding stairs, using the restroom and running right back up, usually within a commercial break or something. So yeah, you got to be a little bit fit because <laughs> you never know. Now there are people that, that improvise and they'll, you know, create a bathroom in the announce booth. That's like last case scenario. That's, you know, all things lose. You, you get a gallon jug and hopefully that'll work. But yeah, that's 
I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. I've seen it done before. It doesn't make for a pleasant workspace. Um, but yeah, it's, that's, yeah. Knowing where the restroom is, that's part of your preparation. I, I like to get there, get a lay of the land, find out who my A2 is, my audio guy, stage manager, read through promo cards, um, see where the cameras are placed, where's my view, check headsets, go over my notes. Okay, I got a good idea. Bathroom's over that way, 50 yards. I can get there quick if I have to. So yeah, it's the little stuff that, you know, I guess I don't really consider part of prep work. It's right. just part of the job. But yeah, that's, I mean, if someone's just starting out, get to work early and get a lay of the land and know where everything is. Where everything is. Also interested in your pre-event meal or are you eating, uh, maybe you don't want to eat too much because you don't want to get sick. Uh, are you waiting, eating after the event? Yeah. What's, what's, your, what's your strategy there? Not a big eater before meals, uh, before games. I don't know why, just maybe it's nervous energy. I just, food just doesn't sound good. And I always feel like if you eat anything or that, it makes you a little slow and logy and make you want to take a nap. And I kind of, I feel like I'm more of an energy guy. So uh, beverages are too great. But other than that, I'm, I'm, I'm wait till afterwards and we'll, we'll celebrate afterwards. Sounds, sounds good. Last question for me here. Want to know, either in your personal life or your career, your you-know-I'm-right moment. So what we mean by that is at some point, somebody told you, hey, Todd, you know, you got to do it this way. This, this is the way it has to go. Maybe it's, you know, your, your father with the medical school thing. But you said, mm, I don't think so. I'm going to do it this way, my way. And ultimately, you will see why I am right. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um... Because so much of this business is based on trust. Um, you have to trust the person in your ear that's giving you stats or giving you information that they're right. And I've had that go wrong a couple of times. And that's not a comfortable situation where someone's in your saying, hey, ask about this when they won this. Okay, you do it. And they go, oh, I didn't win that. I finished third. And you're like, because no one at home is going to say, oh, I'm sure a producer in his ear told him that. Right. And it's just like, you, you got to be ready to take the bullet. So a trust has to be develop between you, the producer, or your stats person that's, uh, that you're working with. Uh, you know, I'm right. And that is really a good question. I, I don't know if I've ever had, I was entirely right. I think it was more of a style call where I'm like, Hey guys, let's not touch that. You know, let's don't go down that road with this interview. Um, and I, I, ugh, you know, when, when it comes to mind and I'm sure people are going to YouTube this and it's going to have a field day. Keith Jackson was asked by Bo Schembechler to come back and do the 100th Ohio State-Michigan game. And Keith, you know, is Keith Jackson. He's the voice of college football. And Keith was like, I want to travel. He want to stay on the West Coast where it's warm. I just, as a favor to Bo and that, Keith's like, we'll do it. Uh, my crew will come out. And, and so ABC switched the crews. They took Brent Musburger's crew and moved to something else, which I don't think they were happy about. And they took the Fouts, Jackson, and that punk in the sideline Harris and moved them to that game. And we were going to halftime of that game. Uh, Lloyd Carr decided they, they were going to take a knee. I think there was a minute and a half to go and they had pretty good field position because they had nice return with a penalty. And you're thinking, okay, you're down, maybe take some shots, field goal. And coach cards, you know, elected to have the quarterback take a knee and the fans went nuts and it's in the big house and they're booing. And of course, Dan Fouts, NFL hall of famer is going, why would you do that? That is like, you're playing not to lose. You got to take, you know, and of course the producer gets in my ear and goes, 
you got to ask Lloyd, you got to ask coach Carr why he took a knee. And I'm like, Oh, and I've, I've said, this is not going to end. Well, I can, I just know right now, coach Carr, when he's coaching, not a warm fuzzy, especially the sideline reporters that are second guessing him. Anyways, did what I was told, asked him about it. And he looked at me and I still to this day, remember my face almost melting. Why would you ask a stupid question like that? <laughs> oh, no. I swear all the blood in my body went right to my <laughs> Well, you did have two timeouts and good field position. And he looked at me and just went and walked off. And I went. And so, yeah, I, I think people were all either Coach Carr's right, what an idiot, or Coach Carr's so rude. How could he do that? And so I thought okay, I can play two ways. I can just, you know, sulk and walk away or I can have some fun with it. And I was more worried about interviewing Jim Trestle for Ohio State because he's usually a little prickly, especially with the media. And so I asked him, coach, you got to leave it. And he was happy and all this stuff. And so I recorded that interview and they reported it in and then they threw it down to me to lead to the interview after the second half started. And so I'm going to have some fun with this. I said, well, in part two of my making friends the last of a lifetime, I talked with Coach Jim Trussell and he said this, and then they rolled it, and it was kind of funny. Made Keith Jackson laugh. So imagine Twitter was around during this time. Yeah, that was before Twitter because I would have probably been just eviscerated by the Ann Arbor faithful. But to his yeah. credit, Lloyd Carr <clears throat> wrote me a handwritten note apologizing and saying, I was wrong. You were right. That was a proper question to ask. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Michigan sent me a, a Michigan football helmet. And of course I saw him uh, at the Rose Bowl that year. They played USC and Keith yeah. Jackson said, now let's go down to Todd Harris. Who's with Lloyd card. If you remember their last running wasn't so amicable. And I was like, Oh <laughs> gosh, here we go. And, I said, happy new year. and he said, happy new year to you. And so from then it was kind of a run joke. And yeah. to be honest with you, um, coach Carr is one of my favorite all time. I mean, he's just, no hard feelings. You know, he was doing his job. I was doing mine. And, and I think the world of him and his family, he's, he's top notch in my book. That's an unbelievable story. We really, really loved it. Um, so we're going to start wrapping up here. I got yeah. one more question on my end. And uh, so of the two of Nick and I, I am more of the huge combat sports fan. Uh, I am a huge MMA fan. I have a lot of friends who love the sport. Uh, a lot of uh, friends, former collegiate wrestlers and all that. Uh, so I want to ask you, uh, about the rise of combat sports in this country because uh, you started calling World Extreme Cage Fighting when it really, really became popular. You were part of yeah. the uh, Versus uh, Network back when Paul Versus. Uh, you got to work for the UFC for a brief period of time. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you about the trajectory of combat sports, the rise of mixed martial arts here in this country, uh, what UFC has been doing, how popular they've gotten. Uh, and have you ever met Dana White? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, Dana White actually, I think, fired me. Uh, he wasn't happy with me, and that's a story I'll share later on if you'd like. Um, yeah, the, the WEC came along, and I got a call again from someone I didn't know, and they said, are you interested in doing this, MMA? And I was like, I don't know if I'm an MMA guy. I've done boxing before, but MMA, is a, that's the next level. Um, Joseph, to answer your question, I think MMA came around because there was a void that boxing left. I think people were tired of matches that were fixed or that just like, Oh, these guys phoned it in or this mess. And there was, you know, so many different title holders and people were like, we just want some clarity. We want some definitive. He won, he lost boom. And I think MMA does that. I mean, it's very rarely, and it happens 
do you get a, a fight where like there's no way he won or yes he won it's you can tell who wins because a lot of times it ends in a tap out or a submission of some sort knockout and so i, I was all in I, I first time i went to a wc event it was me and frank Mir at planet hollywood in las vegas and i think there were maybe 500 people there and there were names like uriah faber and uh, Carlos Condit and these guys that became household names later on that were just new up and coming. And I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. And I went home and told my wife and she's like, well, me and the kids aren't going to watch when you're on there. So I hope you don't care if we don't watch the sport. Well, a couple of events go by and they're mom, dad's on, let's watch. So they watch it. And then also my kids became, you know, big natural born killer is going to waste this. And then my wife came to an event and she was like, I really like your right favor. I'm like, yeah, every other woman does too as well. And so <laughs> it kind of grew. And, and I remember before too long the wc was getting bigger and bigger i remember we went from 500 and we outgrew the hard rock in Las vegas and then we i remember the first big event where i thought this is kind of a big deal was arco arena in sacramento and i think it was uriah faber mike brown one or two and big deal or it was just like wow this is a big fight Ten thousand people and dana white said wait we own the wc but we're not what wait what and so they they merged the two together and again it was a case of I lost the job because they only needed one announced crew and it was Mike Goldberg and Joe Rogan at the time. You might've heard of them. And uh, they, uh, they were doing a great job. And so we were asked to, thanks for getting us where we are, but we don't need you anymore. Um, but it's funny how it goes full circle because Fox came back to me some years later and said, we want to do like a sports center for UFC. Um, UFC tonight, what do you think? And I'm like, it's a great idea. Highlight show once a week, count me in. So it was down in Burbank working for Fox and with Kenny Florian, who Kenny Florian, I think, in my opinion, is one of the underrated. And he does such a good job. Um, and I love working with Frank there. I mean, I've worked with some amazing fighters who are fantastic announcers. But Kenny Florian, he sees fights really well, as does Frank Mir, and sees things coming. Oh, he's setting him up for Uma Plata. Here it comes. Boss Rutan's another one of those. Um, Randy Couture is another one. They see fight. They see moves before they happen. So anyways, long story longer. Sorry, Joseph. Um, no, this is all great. Doing a year of UFC tonight with Kenny Florian. Loving it. And uh, I get a call. I was back east during the week. Uh, those, those shows taped on Tuesday. And I, I was back east doing an Ivy League football game. And I got a call from Sam Flood at uh, NBC. He said, hey, we're going to get into the MMA world again. Because they used to be with, with versus an OLN merged into NBC, NBC, SN. And he said, we're going to start, we're, we're going to league. And it's called the WSOF, WSOF, yeah, World Series of Fighting. And we want you to host it. And I was like, oh, I'm hosting a show called UFC Tonight. And I can just tell you right now, that's not going to, if you're play-by-play -play for a competitive, I know Dana well enough that that's just going to fly like a lead balloon. And so I said, um, yeah, I was under contract for NBC. So I kind of, I couldn't say no. And, and so I said, okay, let's, let's work on the details. And I, when I, by the time I got back to Fox on Tuesday, this was a sat Friday or Saturday, someone had leaked it. And let's just say we're not happy. Um, the coordinating producer, they were like, dude, you can't go to WSOF. I said, well, I'm freelance with you guys at Fox, but I'm under contract with NBC. They've just been letting me do this because they don't have MMA. Now they have MMA and I'm under contract. So I can't say no because... They said, we get it, but um, Dana's not happy. Uh, he's not renewing your contract. And this was like end of November. My contract was in January. I'm like, I kind of had a feeling that's what he would say. So he's uh, a super competitive guy. And he is what he is. And what you, is what you get. He's a businessman, UFC first. 
everything else hit the bricks. Um, and it wasn't that I didn't want to work for UFC. It was just that contractually I was working for NBC. And so when they asked me to do world the fighting as much as I wanted to continue doing UFC tonight, uh, that marriage wasn't going to last. Cause I don't think Dana was going to be thrilled for me on UFC tonight on Tuesdays and world series of fighting on Saturdays. That's pretty funny. That's all great. Todd, we got one last point to make for you before we let you go. And you got to answer honestly. Oh, gosh. When the Blazers trade Dan Lillard to our New York Knicks, how is that going to make you feel? You know, I heard a guy with a middle initial and a last name of Smith say that a couple months ago. And he said it was a done deal that Damian Lillard was going to the Knicks. Not happening. Damian Lillard is Rip City. Damian Lillard is the face of that franchise. And as much as I want to see, honestly, Damian get a world title, I, I mean, I was so happy Tokyo seen him get a gold medal. And I'm like, as much as I want to see him get that NBA title, I just, I don't know if he's a, if he's a Knicks guy. I'm nothing against the Knicks. I just don't know if he's a Knicks guy. Um, he's a hardcore West Coast guy. You know, he wears the letter O, grew up in Oakland, his ball down the road here in Ogden, and now he's in Oregon. So I don't really find an O in, in one of the boroughs, but uh, I, I think Damien's, I think he's a blazer for life. I think he's a blazer for life. Do you, do you really think that he'll make the jump? No, I don't, I don't, uh, yeah, I'm a Knicks fan. I'm a realistic Knicks fan. This team has no shot to win a championship. So what's the point of leaving the Blazers who are at least been in the playoffs and a yeah. top six seed for every year he's going to be there? Maybe we could price CJ McCollum instead. He's a Lehigh guy. He's closer, a little closer to here. <laughs> you have a better shot with him. I don't know if there's enough parts at the Knicks to bring Damien in and win a title. I mean, no. the East is going to be difficult. And as good as Dame is, you know, with Randall and who else are you going to pair him with that you're going to say, okay, now we've got a, a team to win. It's easier to get out of the playoffs in the East and the West, I will say, in my personal opinion, because you don't have the Lakers, the Clippers, the Warriors, now the Suns, the Jazz, the Nuggets. It's just running that gauntlet. Um, Portland, I, I just, I want to pull my hair out because they said to Damian, we are committed. We want to get you help. And they went out and got not a whole lot. Um, and he's yeah, they got ready to come out of Anthony. I don't know. Left Car- yeah, I think I think Dame was okay with that because I he knows how Carmelo and uh and LeBron are boys. I mean, they're just they're well, best all, all I could hope is that the next offseason the Trailblazers don't make a mistake like the, the Wizards did and they trade Lillard to the Lakers for nothing. I mean, I can't believe they the Lakers got Westbrook. It pissed Westbrook. me off. How does that and- happen? I mean, I know LeBron in LA is a draw. Believe me, I was born in LA and it's nice weather when it's January, February, March, and it's La La Land and marketing dollars are there. And you get to play with one of the greatest of all time, if not the greatest of all time, which by the way, I'm MJ guy. Uh, but I just, how they let Westbrook just walk to Los Angeles is beyond me. I, 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 I got to say thank you, Joseph, because I thought for sure when you were going on the Blazer story, I thought you were going to say, how did you guys draft Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan? It's just terrible. And how did you draft uh, Greg, Oden. Greg Oden over Kevin Durant? Kevin Durant. Someone sent me the meanest meme ever. And it was a picture of Kevin Durant standing at the Rose Garden with a 35 Blazer jersey on with all these titles in the rafters. And I was like, oh, that just hurts. Think of what the Blazers would have had. Michael Jordan, Kevin Durant, Blazers. White would have been the new gold in Portland. 
<laughs> Unfortunately, well played, Nick, Nick and I, uh, well Nick and I are hurting a little bit here too. The Knicks haven't won since '72, so we're, we're both '77. So I'm right. I know we're both in the same boat. We're both in the same boat. Yeah. Uh, so Todd, thank you for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. This was so much fun. You had unbelievable stories. Uh, I also want to make a quick point. Uh, I don't know if you're necessarily going to agree with this, but I, I, I wanted 45 minutes or so to, to bring this up. Uh, I think you kind of have a Paul Rudd look going for you a little bit right now. Uh, I don't know if anybody's told you that. I don't know if Nick would agree with me or not. Uh, I don't know if you see it, but I see it. I definitely see the resemblance. So uh, definitely have that work for you. I've had that called many a times. And so I, I take it as a compliment. I get yeah. paid like Paul Rudd, but you know, if it's a lookalike thing, then yeah, he's like a nice guy. And you seem like a great guy. Uh, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate it. What we do here is we always give our guests the last words. So if there's anything else you would like to share, if there's anything else you would like to promote, go right ahead. You know, this was so much fun. Hope you come on again soon. Good luck to everything, you and your family. Enjoy Utah. Uh, if you want, if you ever want to come to New York City, Nick and I will show you around. We know the best piece of places to go to in the city over here. So uh, we'll help take care of you. But if there's anything else you would like to share, promote, Todd, go right ahead. Thanks again for doing this with us. Nick and Joe, it's been a blast. Um, anytime, call me. I love chatting and you guys are so knowledgeable. Love I'm on the podcast with you. Um, nothing really to promote. It's kind of quiet for me. I, I got to be honest, I'm leaving Monday for Mexico. I'm, I'm getting, this is another one of those, a buddy of mine, he's got a fishing tournament. He said, will you come down and be the host for the fishing tournament? I'll pay you. So me and the missus are going to Cabo for a week. So wow. oh, there you go. I know. Uh, we got we got a big so uh, jealous. We got a big, we got a big championship softball men's league game coming up. We got to get you to come call oh, up for us. I'll, yes. I'll, you, you throw us <laughs> the kitchen. I'm there. I'm there. Yeah. There we go. Sounds good. So that's gonna do it here for this extremely awesome episode of You Know I'm Right for our special guest Todd Harris and my co-host Joe Calabrese. I'm Nick Durst, and this has been you. No. Ah, right.